Welcome to My Life, Chassidus Applied, episode 241. This uh, program is in honor of Yossi Samuels upon his 50th birthday on the 16th of Tevis, wishing him all the brachas, dedicated by his friends and classmates. 50th birthday is a unique birthday, it says Ben Chamishim Le'etzah in Pirkei Ovis. And just to mention two points, since we're talking about a 50th birthday, of course I extend my blessings and prayers as well, for Hashanah Hatzloche, that when the Rebbe turned 50, which was in Tovshin Yud Beis, the Rebbe said the Maimed and Yud Aleph Nisim, Adnais Fosai Tiftach, it's on the capital Nun Aleph, which we begin saying when we turn 50. When Rab Nisim Emnov, the big Mashpia, um, turned 50, the Rebbe told him to chazer that Maimed, Adnais Fosai Tiftach. That's one short point. Another, I saw a note that the Rebbe wrote to someone who was turning 50 to look in Shari Zayar on Ovis Seif Pedic Hay. Shari Zayar is a safer from Rabbi Rab Ruven Margolius where he cross-references Zayar and Shas, a safer that the Rebbe used extensively, referred to, because it connects Shas and Zayar and different opinions. It's a very interesting piece on Chamishim there, Chamishim Shona ben Chamishim Le'etzah, different opinions of different, different chazal on 50. So happy birthday to you, and uh, definitely look up these both, the Maimad Adnes Vosei Tiftach, as well as the Sharezer on Chamishim Shana. This is a good opportunity as well that anybody interested in sponsoring, dedicating a program in honor of a loved one, or memory of a loved one, Le'elenu, this is an excellent opportunity to do so. I should also say that um, for those that are not aware, we have an entire section on our website, MeaningfulLife.com slash MyLife, where you have all MyLife Chassidah-supplied resources, beginning with archives of all the previous episodes, which are all indexed and can all be accessed by looking at the timestamp in the YouTube version of the videos. You can actually just go straight to the topic. You can search by topic, as well as the essays from previous years, and as well as a forum where you can submit any question anonymously and confidentially, and that's where most of the questions come to us. So we begin with that uh, housekeeping. I will also, even though I always begin with the, with the time, and we will talk about the time this week and the Chof Tevis as well as Pashash Shmois, but because we are cl- getting close to the official launch of the fifth annual My Life Chassidus Applied Contest, so I'll let you in on a little secret for those that um, are listening in. The official announcement will not be until next week, as we get closer to Chavdala Tevis, which is our anniversary when we began My Life, as well as the essay contest the first year, which was after the first anniversary of the My Life uh, Chassidus Applied series. So you can begin preparing your essays. I'll just give you a few little tidbits, but we'll announce it more officially. This doesn't have to be kept a secret, but since you're listening, you can begin, and why not have extra time, an extra week? So the essay contest will be officially launched then, but that doesn't mean you can't prepare and start writing and researching. It will be the $10,000 first prize, the second $3,600 prize, the third $1,000 prize, and then there will also be an extra, as we did last year, a special $500 prize for students, only for students. Students could also win the other prizes, but the last final prize will be only for students. The deadline will be Zayin Oderishin, Tov Shinayin Tes, 
which corresponds to the English date of February 12th. And you can already go to MeaningfulLife.com slash contest and see the rules and the details. Those who are familiar with the, familiar with the contest know about it, but it's always worthwhile reading the rules again and the guidelines. And as I said, you can begin, um, even though the official opening will be next week. I will say that the essay contest has had unbelievable impact, far beyond their expectations. I mean, some things I've heard from people literally that have changed their lives. I know it sometimes sounds like a cliche, but people have told me personally how it's changed their lives in detail. And um, I'm extremely moved and touched by the fact that someone's harvesting and, and uh, work, exerting themselves to invest in writing a, a Hasidic essay, even though not everybody can win the first prize or the second prize, third prize, but that alone is the biggest winner of all. I've also mentioned that the first year we launched that contest, we actually discovered afterwards by Protis, Divine Providence, that the Rebbe wrote a letter 60 years to the day when we, when we first conceived of the contest in Tovshin Tes Vov, in Tavis, I believe Yutes Tavis was when the Rebbe writes a letter about writing essays, the Kovid Yud Shvat. Um, in the, to quote one of the one of the essay top ten winners in the previous years, Chani Maleki wrote about reviewing of the brain, not the same before and after. How it li- really rewiring of the brain, I should say. How it really rewired his brain. So. That's the ultimate compliment and the ultimate objective, to take siddhis, apply it to contemporary life, to take a situation, an issue, a challenge, and bring siddhis and make it come alive in addressing that particular issue. I keep mentioning, I'll say it again, the essay contest is specifically geared for you, for everyone. It's a level playing field. The biggest, understand, the people who understand siddhis best, who have submitted, are not necessarily will be the winners because there are other necessities to win a contest, which is also, would win an essay, have a winning essay, which is also applying it. And we specifically made it in a way that anybody can win. If you look at the winners of the last four years, you'll see that they were not necessarily name recognition people. You don't have to be an excellent writer. We don't judge it by writing, and we don't judge it by pure knowledge of chassidus. It's a combination of a bunch of factors as outlined in the rules. I say it because there are people who keep mentioning, it's not for me, how could I compete with all the great ones? How could I compete with others? You can, don't underestimate, and you could win $10,000. So I, I don't see why one person wouldn't put the effort for really all it is is a little time and energy. You don't have to put any investment. It's not like you're putting in money, which you could lose. You're putting in some time, and the reward on all levels is absolutely inestimable. <clears throat> I also would emphasize that don't wait till the end of the contest. Now is the time. Don't push it off. Start now. Give yourself time. Make sure you review it. Make sure you show it to someone to review. Make sure you follow all the guidelines because many essays would be marked a lot higher if they just filled in a few details that the, that the guidelines and rules require. Because again, to have a level playing field, you need to have rules that everybody has to abide by. That's what makes it equal. And please, above all, share it with others any way possible. Get the word out there. It's one of the most obvious ways of giving the Rabbeim nachas for all the investment and all the Messias Nefesh in teaching Chassidus, in writing Chassidus, in giving us their time over these, all the years, all the seven generations, and especially our Rebbe, what better way to honor that is by actually doing something, by taking an Inyan Chassidus, and it could be about any topic, it could be about Gula Mashiach, 
and using it as a tool, as an instrument that helps us all become better people, better Jews, better chassidim. Okay. Now, let us go to the time. This week will be Chav Tevis, later in the week. And um, it's also Pasha Shmeis. So these are two themes that the Rebbe will talk about, especially in later years with the Rambam, after the Takon and Tov Shem Amdal, after Pesach, 1984, when the Rebbe came out with the, the suggestion, or you can say the, the, the Takone, which is like the edict, or the, the, to begin learning Rambam, three, either three chapters a day, finish it once a year, or, three, or over three years by learning one chapter a day, or say for our mitzvahs, Chav Tevis, which is the Yortzeit of the Rambam. It's also Pasha Shmeis, Pasha Shmeis, which is the beginning of the second book of Chumash, Sefer Gula, as the Ramban, Nachmanides, calls it. And it is also, which we'll talk about next week, because next week is Moichav Dalat Tevis. And the Rebbe connects the Rambam and the Alta Rebbe, many similarities, and the Yortzeits are within four days of each other. But let us focus a bit on the Rambam, I'll focus on Shmeis. Now, maybe we'll begin with Shmois and then we'll go to the Rambam. Of course, the obvious question is, the first two and a half chapters of, the, of Sefer Shmois is about, is about Golos Mitzrayim and the bitterness and the depths of Golos. And yet the Ramban calls the whole Sefer Sefer Agula. So true, the whole purpose of Golos Mitzrayim was to bring the redemption, but it begins in the beginning of middle of Parsha Boy. And then from there on, the Exodus, the story of Exodus, Peshalach, and then Yisrael Matan Teda, and then the continuing journey to, to, the, to uh, building the Mishkan, which with which the book of Shemais ends with them erecting and establishing the Mishkan on the first day of when the, 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 the Mishkan was ready to be served in. But then the Pash Pekudeh. So of course the answer is, not just that Golos is because it is in order to bring Gula, when you call the whole Sefer Gula, means Golos is part of Gula. One of the Chidushim, one of the ideas that Rebbe emphasizes often, is Yerida Tzedek Aliyah can be determined as Yerida is in order to bring an Aliyah. But then, if you go deeper, the Yerida is part of the Aliyah, because the only way to get to such a great place is to go down in order to go up. So though at the time it's painful and, and it was very painful, and though at the time it was suffering and oppression and all that the exile in Egypt brought, which was literal genocide and all the... the, the the suffering that the Jews went through, as Moshe says at the end of this chapter, why are you doing evil to these people? Yet, in retrospect, once you see what it led to, which is what Hashem says to Avram Avinu, that yes, they'll be in a land that's not theirs, but then they will leave with great wealth, and great wealth is besides physical wealth, also spiritual wealth. They become a nation, an empire, a nation. Not an empire in the material sense, an empire as, as, as the, the magnitude of a nation. That this nation would now be worthy, ready to receive the Torah, Matan Torah, and ready to change the world. Being children of Ram, Yitzhak, Yankov, Sarah, Rivka, Rachel, and Leah, but it all became formalized after the Kur HaBazel, like a melting pot, like the melting, like the melting, I should say, smelting pot of, of an oven that hardens you that tests your metal and hardens the metal in order to be able to deal with any challenge. As the Ramaral says, that before Mitzrayim, after, after Gula of Mitzrayim, Jews can never be slaves again. Not mentality, not psychologically, not spiritually. You're my servants, God's servants, not servants to my servants. 
So it opened up a new channel of complete transcendence and emancipation of an attitude that we will never bow to another. Mordechai would not bow, and the Jews never bow to anything that's man-made or worship anything that is man-made. So it's an attitude that actually allowed us, the Jewish people, collectively and individually, to forge and pioneer a new path that would not be just another conformist movement, but one that would actually challenge the status quo, as Avram Avinu did in his time, challenge every form of paganism, every form of self-worship, and bring into the world charity, virtue, tzedakah, mishpah, justice, social justice, and in time it ultimately changed the entire world. The world in which we live in today, a world that respects freedom and human rights, is a world that was forged by the Jewish people as they left Egypt and, and introduced into the world the concept of freedom, the concept that nobody has a right to control or subjugate another human being. It took time because it wasn't so simple. Monarchs, monarchies didn't go away after the exodus from Egypt. But for the Jews, it went away. And even though we're still servants of Achshverosh and we traveled from country to country and we were under the rule of other countries, but spiritually, in the words of the Rebbe Rashab, the Friedrich Rebbe, when he left prison, repeated the words of the Rebbe Rashab, and he said, not with our desire did we go into Golis, not with our desire will we go out of Golis. But we should know that only the goof goes in Golis. The neshama never goes into Golis because the neshama belongs to God. So though we are obligated to follow the rules of the land, as long as it does not break the Torah. And there's also a reason. We do it not just to surrender, God forbid, or to succumb, compromise ourselves, because that's the purpose. To be sucking, to repair the world, you have to engage with the world. Al-Tareb explains in Tehreir Mishpatim, we speak the language of each nation. Gemara is in Aramic, Aramaic, Aramish. And we speak the language because we are Mevada, we refine the languages, we refine each country that we travel to. So our role there is to, you come to a city, you follow its guidelines, you follow its customs, as long as it's not affecting Tehreir. And the country, we're there to transform it. And that's what Mitzrayim and Gol's Mitzrayim taught us. So the truth is the whole Sefer is a Sefer of Gu'ulu. And in our own personal lives, the same is true. At times you may feel subjugated, you may feel obligated, you may feel you have to respond and please somebody's expectations or demands. We have to know we are free people, spiritually free. Each of us born and created in the divine image with the ability to achieve anything we set our minds to. Yes, we're human beings, and therefore, at times, we may feel the need to, uh, to, for security purposes. We feel insecure. Others are judging us. But do not be disturbed. Don't be embarrassed for those that mock, because you have a unique individuality. At the same time, we have to cooperate with others. We work with others. But never should your voice be silenced, because your voice is necessary. Your unique voice, ain't day saying Shavas, Every person's opinion matters. Obviously, we have a tater that tells us what to do when we have different opinions. How do we know our opinion is, not, is correct or incorrect, subjective, etc.? But it is, a, it is our birthright and the essence of who we are that we're created by God in the divine image, and we have that, by virtue of that, 
tremendous powers and resources. So no matter what gullus we go through, whether it's subtle or not so subtle, it's all really part of testing our metal, of bringing out the best in us, so we can become greater, as the Jews became after Mitzrayim, as they were oppressed, so in direct proportion to that, they thrived and flourished. As I said, they left with great wealth. That's what we learn from this chapter. The Rambam, Chof, Tevis is his yard site. The Rambam, of course, the Rebbe, as I said, in 1984, established the idea of learning Rambam every day, because the Rambam in a Sefer Mishnah Teda encompasses all Kola Teda Kula. So when you learn it, you learn every part of Teda. Shulchan does not cover, for example, Hilchus of the Mashiach, the, the laws that will only be applicable in the time of Mashiach, or when there's a Besamidrash, the Rambam covers the whole spectrum. So the Rebbe, when he talked about it then, he said two things that the Rambam, you learn Kola Teda Kula every year, and you're also... Achdus, because when you're learning Kola which unites Teda, you're also uniting with others that are learning. So it's the unity of Teda, the unity of Eden altogether. The Rambam did that. He joined all different forces. He was a doctor, by, not by choice, because of the accident that happened to his brother. He was a doctor on one end. He was a philosopher. He was a thinker. He wrote Meir Nevuchim for the perplexed. And he wrote Mishnah Teda for Allah. So the Rambam was an all-encompassing force. It was even controversial in some ways. That was then vindicated by the Ramban and others to demonstrate his greatness. So the Rambam is a model for us of integration, of bringing together different parts of Teda and addressing different circumstances. So he was such a tremendous leader. He came out in his letter, he got his taman, a letter that he wrote to the Yemenite community because they were being criticized, they were living under the Muslims. And some of them, the Muslim law was that you had to behave like a Muslim in, the, in, the, in public, or at least not being Jewish in public, and some Jews ended up going to a mosque. So, and, some ex, and some rabbis excommunicated them. The Rambam raised this tremendous treatise, tremendous letter of the Limutzchus, that, that, that Islam is not, is not um, a Vedazara, it's, it's monotheism, and therefore, of course, that's not the place you want to go to, but it's not considered a Vedazara if somebody goes into a mosque. But the pain point you see in his letter is how he takes on the cause of those being criticized and understood the challenges of the time and addressed it like a true leader addressed it. So you see in the Rambam many, many similarities to the Alta Rebbe, as the Rebbe says in some of the Sikhs when he talks about the parallels. And of course for us, it comes together in the fact that he united all different parts of Teda as well as of course, as well as the laws of Mashiach, which he concludes Mishnah Teda about bringing the Geula. And there are many other lessons, so I'll just refer you some cross-referencing to both on Shmois and, and uh, Chav Tevis, episodes 50, 96, 146, and 195. Previous four years, we spoke about these topics. Okay. With that, let us go to some questions. Being that we just finished Sefer's Bereshis, and we're starting Sefer Shmeis. So some questions came in last week about the end of Bereshis, by Yechi Yaakov, Beretz Mitzrayim Shvaya, it concludes Yaakov's life. So here's a person who writes a question, understanding Yaakov Avinu Bechir Sheba Ovis. Bechir means the preferred one, the, the ultimate, the epitome, Bechir, the chosen of the Ovis. Because Yaakov, it says, 
that Avram and, and Yitzchak both had a child. One had Yotzim Amenu Yishmol, other one Yotzim Amenu Esav. And Yaakov was Mitoshe Shlema. He had a family that was complete, all holy people. And Yaakov, of course, also Tiferes, and many other reasons that Yaakov is called B'chir Shabbav, as he brought and he synthesized and integrated the best of Yitzchak and the best of Avram. So here's the question. Dear Rabbi Jacobson, I hope you can help me understand Yaakov Avinu, Yaakov, our forefather, who's known as B'chir Shabbavis, the chosen one of the Ovis, meaning within the Ovis itself, the one that's the, the highest level. His life story is so troubling to me. And this, the fellow writes, the writer here, writes nine different issues that he wants to address. I'll read them quickly and then try to address them. We, will st- we start off meeting Yaakov, who won't give his famished brother Esau some soup without forcing him to sell him his birthright. Talk about being judgmental and with, per- with a personal gain. Number two, when it comes to time for blessings from Yitzhak, he doesn't come in honestly and tells his father that he purchased the birthright and the firstborn blessings belong to him. Instead, he has to take them with trickery. Three, this forces him to run away from his brother. He doesn't stand up and defend himself, but chooses to flee. Four, he doesn't defend himself when Lovin gives him Leah instead of Rachel, Rachel. He ends up working for another seven years. There are so many other responses he could have had other than, be, than being Lovin's sucker. And then the Torah testifies that he stole Lovin's heart by leaving without saying goodbye. Five, he comes to Esau and acts weak, sending him presents, bowing and trying to placate him. Six, he blames Shimon and Levi for a deal they made in his presence. Seemingly, he doesn't stand up for Hamer and Shechem. And when his sons do, he, rem- he reams them out for taking a stand and destroying the city that raped their sister. Seven, he plays favoritism and then sends Yosef into harm's way by sending him to look after his brothers, playing into Yosef's very weakness of spreading evil lies about his brothers. Eight, when he meets Pare, he bitterly, Pharaoh, or bitterly complains about his life, sounding like a grumpkin. Nine, after all that, his best years are in Egypt. All, this, all of this sounds like someone whose life I wouldn't want to emulate. Can you please help me understand, Yaakov? I read this uncensored, even though, frankly, some of it is a little disrespectful. But this is what the person wrote. So, as you know, I try to read it as is. That doesn't necessarily mean I agree with his tone. And, um, but I will address it briefly. So, very good questions. I'm not sure why Dafka Yaakov, you'd picked on Yaakov. If you go through the Torah, I don't think you're going to find one character, one personality, one incident, one episode that isn't controversial. Cain kills his brother Hevel. Look with the children of Noach. Some of them do to Noach. Then you have the story with Lot and his daughters, and you have the story with Esau and Yish- I'm sorry, Yishmael and Yitzchok. Story with Yaakov and Esau, and them fighting. Some of it you allude to. Yosef is sold by his brothers into slavery. Yehuda and Tamar. The list goes on and on and on and on. I remember a fellow coming to one of my classes many years ago. He had never learned Torah except in his mother's womb. And here he is starting to learn. And I remember how proud he was as he was finishing each Chumash. And finally he comes to the end of Zeis He finishes. He comes to me very disturbed. He says, you know, I thought there'd be a happy ending. You know, after all they went through, you think the last verse, they go into Eretz Yisrael. No. No. Moshe does not go in. The generation, the Deir Amidbar, does not end up in Israel. It's the next generation. And you don't read about that till the next book. He said, what's the story with this Bible, with this Torah of ours? It's like, it's not peaceful reading. 
It's not calming. There's some verses that are beautiful. But it's so much controversy, so much conflict, so much tension. And look at the Jews and God. God does so much for them. They thank him. And then they don't like the water. And when they give them water, they don't like the bread. And they give them the bread, the man, they don't like that. Then they don't like the, 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 the birds. And on and on and on. I mean, he was a humorous guy, and he described it in such a way that I couldn't stop laughing. And I thought about it. You know, I grew up with it, so I never asked myself this question. So I thought about it, and I came back to him. I said, you know what? The Torah is a reflection of life. The Torah is not meant to be just a book to be read, to put children to sleep at night. The Torah reflects life. It's a blueprint for life. And therefore, it's not about happy ending, not happy ending. It's telling you the realities of life. Realities of life is that life is not simple. It's complex. Now, there's an explanation for all these stories. And especially when you know that the Torah is really talking about a spiritual narrative a blueprint of God's for existence long before all these events actually happened. They happen on a spiritual level. And they're happening right now on a cosmic level. However, when you translate and read it in, in practical terms, it's full of tension and crisis and challenges and nothing is simple. Nothing. What better reflection of life? If we read a book that was so beautiful and so simple, and everything has everything is so tidy and neat and no complications and no com- battles or, or or misunderstandings. You'd say well, it doesn't fit my life, doesn't reflect me. You know, it's a nice book, but it's a fantasy. The Torah deals with the realities of life. Now, that's in general, and specifically now to, I'll get all the explanations. You have to learn Torah. You have to learn all the chalkia Torah, all the parts, interpretation, Prasad, Remzrus, Said, and especially Chassidus, to really understand his personal relevance. There's so many chapters in the Torah. You could say, "What does it negate to me? I'm Mitzayda. There's no Mitzayda today. The laws of purity and impurity, almost all of Sefer Vayikra, the Mishkan, the Migdash, the Kriyas Yamsuf. So the answer is, it's all directives to our lives, and that's Torah's Melosh and Hira. Torah is not a storybook. It's not a history book. It's not even just a book of inspiration. It's directive. Guidance. A guide to life. And that's the whole story. That's why the Torah doesn't mince words. It tells us everything that we need to know to guide us in life. Now, as far as Yaakov goes, Yaakov, Bechir Shabbat he was the closest to the reality because he was the father of all the Shvatim, which become the father, the progenitors, and the ancestors of all Jews. Even though Avram Yitzchak are the first two of us, but Yaakov is the one that branches into the Shvatim, that is direct link to all the of us and so on. So Yaakov reflects most the diversity of life. He lived less than the others. He suffered more. Because Yaakov was a reflection of the challenges of life. Yaakov had a twin brother, Esav. This was not his choice, because as Chesidus explains in Nefesh Alekis, Nefesh Abamis, and when you take all these factors and I believe I discussed this at length, Yaakov's role of why he had to go to battle with Esau. They represent two nations, two archetypes. And the way you go to battle is you have to dress in the garments of Esau, both in the way that he bought the, the birthright that you mentioned, and the way that he got the blessings. You come to realize that the soul has to so-called convince the body on its terms which you may so-call trickery, but it's not trickery, as I discussed a number of times, and I'll give some references shortly. 
that when you teach a child and you say, here's a candy because you learned Torah, is that a trick? Incentive? No, it's the only way they can understand it is by understanding the sweetness of the candy comes from spiritual sweetness. And I explained then at length the, the analogy with the Baal Shem Tov about how the king sends off his son to a distant land and, and their son is, is living among others. The only way he can celebrate the king's letters that he receives is through, is through uh, throwing a party and saying to everyone, Today's free cocktails, a party. Everybody celebrates because they're getting free food and drinks. And he's celebrating because he received a letter from his father. All this to come to explain that Yaakov's complicated life is actually a reflection of our own journey, every aspect of it. And everything you're describing in such so-called dismissive terms is actually tremendous insight and lessons for each one of us. I can't go and will not go right now through every one of the ones you mentioned. Suffice it to say that every one of them has an explanation, but take this into account. Yaakov is our forefather. He's our grandfather. And his life reflects our life. And there's a Yaakov within each one of us. And challenge yourself, and then look into the Maimorim and the Sichas, how each aspect, each question you ask, this is my homework to you, is actually a reflection of both Yaakov's life of bringing godliness to a hostile world, by Yelecharana from Be'er Sheva, and in doing so, all the rest will fall into place. So it's actually directives of how we enter a hostile, corrupt world with Lovon and Esau and so on, and transform it into a divine home. And every one of your, all the questions would be answered if you take that attitude. So I said, I'm not going to go through it all, because I've done this many times. I'll refer you to episodes 45 and 225 where I did some of these stories. And the rest are all explained in a beautiful way of explaining Yaakov as his role, Teferis, Emes, Ishtam, Yeshiv, Aholim. How does a pure soul come into a world, a hostile world, a world of Esau and Lovon, and make it? And not only make it, but build a family, a strong family, and build the foundations and the seeds that would bring to Ufarats the Yom of Akedma of Tzafayin of Anegba, which was the purpose. So we're here thousands of years later to talk about it. So if you look at it at a very simplistic, superficial level, yeah, your questions are all legitimate questions. But when you understand the deeper meaning, every one of them has an explanation. As I said, time is simply not allowed to me, because each one of, each one of these nine points you made has, deserves its own class. So I hope I said enough to get the ball rolling and... And of course, I more than welcome any feedback or any thoughts, further thoughts on this topic. Okay, we go to the next question. How would the Rebbe approach the current issue of government trying to change our education system? Okay, so we have lately um, New York, the government, the government ex- investigating the system in the, in, the, in, the, in our yeshiva system and also other from communities where they don't teach formally secular education. I'm going to get into what incited them and what the causes behind it, but we have a situation. As a matter of fact, I was invited to a session where they came to interview one of the schools and they wanted to hear a presentation. I was one of those that presented. My, basically, what I said, I said that what I believe is what the Rebbe would say. We, we are here three and a half thousand years. We brought education to the world. Who is the most educated people? The people of the book. Who brought social justice to the world? Who brought civil rights, the rights of individuals, the concept that the foundations that this country is built upon? It's Jews who studied Torah. So I made the case that exact opposite. 
you should embrace the yeshiva system because the yeshiva system is what allows the public school system to exist. And all its foundational principles of morality and ethics come from Torah. Not to say this to pull rank, even though it is pulling rank, is you don't tamper with something that has thousands of years of history behind it. This is not advocating, God forbid, any type of illiteracy. It's the focusing on what is the primary form of education, which is to create better people, to create a better world, to create people who know what their calling is. With that comes as well learning tools and instruments of how to make a living and so on. So what the Rebbe would say, as he has said, that the foundation of the world is based on a Torah education. Everything else follows from there. We live in a secular world and sometimes does not focus on the spiritual values. And I would even use the word because we live in a country where there's a separation of church and state, where even the morality, the moral fabric of the belief system and the value system is often also forgotten and lost in the shuffle due to the focus on skills to make a living. All the physical sciences, the social sciences, the political sciences are tools, are instruments. It's having a very sophisticated tool set, but what are you going to use it for? So the Rebbe's approach would be very straightforward. This is the foundation of healthy people and people who will change the world for the good. And do it in the spirit of Avram, Yitzhak, Yankiv, Sarah, Rivka, Rachel, Leah, Moshe Rabbeinu, and all the greats. And even on a secular level, you see the intelligence and the wisdom of Jews. That wisdom did not come from the universities, it came from years and years of academic excellence, of valuing education going to school from 7 in the morning till 9 o'clock or even later at night and realizing that education is a full-time thing, not just a few hours in the day. And on and on and on. So the Rebbe's attitude would be very adamant. Obviously, you work, you have to work with the government if they're coming to issues, but to make the case without apologetics is, first of all, an easy case to make. And look at the proof is in the pudding. Does every does a religious community have its levels of people under poverty and poverty level, or people out of jobs and so on? Of course, every community has. But what's our attitude? We have gemachs, we have zdokas, we help people place jobs. And if you were to make a study comparing the results of yeshiva education, strictly yeshiva, strictly limudikedish, with those of their peers, same age in a public school, come see with the results. What are the results of these adults? Employment-wise, crime-wise, marriage-wise, family-wise, their contribution to society-wise. So the Rebbe's attitude would be very straightforward in this context without even question. Of course, this touches upon the discussions that we've had with, um, with this about secular education. So I want to just read the question completely now since I didn't read, I just read the, the Hi Rabbi Jacobson, thanks for all your amazing classes. I would like to know what would be the Rebbe's approach to the issue we have now with the government trying to change our education system. We know how strong the Rebbe was about we should only have Yiddish studies and we shouldn't have secular studies. I've heard, I've heard a story that one of the administrators of the school asked the Rebbe about such an issue that the government came to the school to mix in on what we learn and the Rebbe told him to send away to send them away and tell them they don't, that he doesn't have what to do here when he comes again. And he did it and no inspector came again. Is this something we can still do today?
How should we deal with this issue? So I don't know about the Rebbe saying it in that way, send them away and never to come back. Basically, the Rebbe probably said, be cordial and respectful, but also to be firm and tell them what we're doing works and has worked for thousands of years. And there'd be no country of the United States that's only 300 years old, a little less. And with all its, the foundations built on the principles that I mentioned, if there were no Ten Commandments, and if there were no Torah and the constitutional law based on Talmudic law, and all that comes with that. Okay, in episodes 24 through 26, 153 and 209, I address more of the topic of soul secular studies and how the Rebbe's approach to that. So that covers that question. Next question. Is it appropriate to sing the gunim in the restroom? Hi, Rabbi. Thanks so much for all your classes. They're all very insightful and practical. As a chassid, I'm often singing the gunim throughout the day. They pick up my mood. They help me cope with the stresses of my life, of life, or may simply be stuck in my head. This also includes the time I spend in the shower. I usually hum a niggin to myself while in the shower to pass the time. According to my understanding, this is not a problem according to halacha, since I'm not saying words of Torah in the bathroom. But is it appropriate according to chassidus, especially since some of the nagunim I sing come from the rabbeim? To reiterate, it's not like I'm hosting a fabrengen in the restroom and singing the Alter Rebbe's nigan there. It's just a symptom of having a tune stuck in my head and singing it for my own enjoyment. Any guidance would be much appreciated. You know, people ask me whether there's still new questions coming in to my life. Well, here you go. I have to say, and I feel honored and humbled, the mere fact that people feel this is a platform where they can write every question, I think gives it a life of its own because once you're dealing with personal questions, so even though there are certain basic questions, and I really thought in the beginning we'd cover them after a few weeks, 30 weeks or whatever it would be, but once people hook in and they bring their personal issues, then really it becomes endless because life goes on and life has every week its own challenges and every day its own challenges. So here's a question, which I can't say is a life and death issue or something so more psychological or something so sensitive and personal, but it's still an interesting question. So let's begin with this. I have not seen anything from the Rebbe or the Rabbeim about this. So I'll just share my thoughts and the spirit of things. <clears throat> So thought number one is this. Yes, correct. Halachically, it may not be an issue. But the spirit, when we sing a nigan, we know we, can't, we bring the spirit of the person who has composed the song or who valued the song. So bring it, just like you wouldn't put a picture, God forbid, of a Rebbe up in a bathroom, in a restroom. Sing a nigan is in some way, it's not the place. Everything has its place. However, thinking about it, I would say this. If you have a very big nusoyin, you're in the shower, and you have a machshava zara enters your mind, maybe it's kedai to sing a nigan better than a machshava zara, just to cancel it. But I would not say lechat that's the way to go. So I take the question, let's take it a little broader, instead of being so technical. There's a spirit of things. Everything has its time and place. Even though chassidus is so beautiful and so reich, there are places you learn it, there are places you're not supposed to learn it. In the Beis HaKisei, you're not, you're not supposed to be misbein on Tera even. A nigan, a nigan of Gdusha, is a place that's not the place for it. It's not the right spirit of it. That's the general answer of it. But I still read the question. I still bring it into the picture. If someone has any thoughts, additional thoughts, by all means. But I will say, commend you to have a nigan on your lips, a nigan that you always sing and hum, 
is beautiful because it brings, lifts us up and it lifts us up with something coming from the Rabbeim. We know a Rebbe, just like in his Tehri, he invests himself. A Negan captures the Rebbe's Neshama as well. Especially a Negan from that Rebbe. But as I said, everything has its time and place. And, 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 and that's why I said that you have to have a, your boundaries. So that's my thoughts on this topic. Okay. Okay, next question. Is it proper for a chassid to use a Fitbit to track his exercise accomplishments? What is a Fitbit? I'll be honest, I didn't know what it was until the question came in. I went to look it up. It's, this is what it's called, activity trackers. Wireless enabled wearable technology devices that measure data such as the number of steps, walked, heart rate, quality of sleep, steps climbed, and other personal metrics involved in fitness. Now, I'm not really sure why this would not be appropriate. If exercise is appropriate, why not gauge the exercise? So I'm going to assume, I'm not going to assume that the question meant this, but I'm going to just, instead of assuming, I'd rather broaden the question that perhaps the issue is being obsessed with it to the point where you're measuring and, you know, a person should be obsessed with learning Tera, be mitzvahs, davening, shlichus, so in that context, yes. To worship the body to the point where you're going obsessed with exercise or obsessed with measuring exercise is somewhat not necessarily in the spirit of what Yiddishkeit is about. At the same time, a person is supposed to be healthy. Healthy is part of as the Rebbe cites the Rambam, which means it's part of serving God. First of all, God created the body, so we have to keep a body healthy. It's not yours it's God's property, as the Radba says. Secondly, when you have a healthy body, you can learn Tayyab Menuchah peacefully. You don't have the distractions of, God forbid, illness, disease, infection, and so on. As that's why there's Chachamim Nisavu for Mashiach, because it would be a time where we'd have health and we'd have the peace of mind, the peace of the world, to be able to learn Tayyab without any distractions. Including that, especially if a doctor prescribes it, health is, is exercise, exercising your body. Obsession is never healthy when it comes to things like this. So if the question is about obsession and the Fitbit just fits into that type of obsession, then I would say yes, just like uh, being obsessed with uh, exercise is not the number one priority in a person's life. It's important. Make it part of your regimen. So once you're doing it, to measure it, it's also not the end of the world. You're measuring it. This is one of the ways you measure it. But I go again. If it becomes something, this becomes your addiction. All addictions are not healthy. So that's how I would respond to this question. Um, now, you know, we know, for example, the Greeks worship the body. It's one of the things that the Jews did not do. Now, that doesn't mean we have to go to the other extreme and have weak bodies and frail bodies and feel uh, and feeble and so on. Person has to be a healthy person. So the question is all balance. Okay. Next, God. So we've talked about God many times. This may be an undercurrent of all topics. When you talk about Chesidus applied, you're talking about God, applying God to our lives. So I've talked about this many times, but here is a question that came in. And um, I'll let me address it, even though, as I said, it's probably covered in previous episodes. And I'll give you a few re- cross-references after I, cover, after I review this. So God, a few questions about God. And, um, yeah. I know my premise is wrong, 
So please help. Why does God exist? Where does God come from? How could something always exist? So yes, your premise is wrong, and that's why all these questions are applicable. And so I'm glad you point that out. An axiom, a musculation in Hebrew, is vital. You have to know what our premise is, what our assumptions are. Now, if your assumption, God forbid, is that God is like us, just a bigger entity, so just like a father gave birth to a child, God is the father of all fathers. He gave birth to us all. So then the question applies, who gave birth to him? And obviously it's a good question. But the problem is God is not like us. And He's not a human. He's not like a human. He created the human being. But God is beyond it all. As Chassidus explains at length. But not just Chassidus. The Chokrim, the Maral. So many different commentaries. That God, based on the verses I just cited and other verses. That God is not like us in any way. So he's not like similar to us. He created us, as Chassidus explains, because God himself manifested himself in a structure and therefore created us in the image of that structure. But God himself is beyond that structure. The famous machlek is between the Rambam and the, the Rambam, talk about the Rambam, Chavtevis, and the Maral, cited in Tanya in a number of places, where the Rambam says, Hu That we and our knowledge of things are separate. There's me, and I know of this chair, I know of this table, I know of you, you know of me. But our knowledge is outside of us. The Abish says, Who amado Because since he encompasses all reality, he doesn't know something as outside of him, he knows it like from within himself. Comes the maral, makes a whole tumult. God is not God is defined by Das. God is beyond Das. As we say in Pasakhalayu, he's not. He doesn't have any attributes, including das. The Maral says, God is Lamayal Midas, comes Arizal. And the Ramak first in the Arizal, the Alta Rebbe brings Naga and Tanya Perik Beis. And then in other places, also later in Tanya Perik Memches, and, and later in Shaykh Vamuna Perik Tes, and says that the Ramak explains that in Seder Shtalshtus, in Sphiris, that's where Huamadu Yudeh, there there's das. With the Rambam. But that's only as God manifests and in attributes, in spheres. And also the Arizal after the Tzimtzum also would agree with that. But the way God is in his so-called in his own domain, not defined by the structure which he manifested in, that's higher than all types of structure. And in that these rules don't apply. So we say Koshekekriyasyamsuf. Make Nashirich is as difficult as Kriya Samsuf. How could it be difficult for God? Kriya Samsuf is difficult. He created water, he created land. What's the big thing? He could suspend laws of nature like that. Because in the manifestation of Shtalshus, God said, I'm not going to suspend nature. I'm going to respect the structure I created. And even Kriya Samsuf didn't just, he could have just poof, just walked through. No. Sent a wind all night long, caused the water to rise, stand. So as much as possible, it did not suspend all of existence, even though it was an open miracle. But God, as he's beyond it all, he's not bound by these rules. So as such, all these questions on why does God exist, the question is never on God. God's mitsusi matsmusi exists because he's reality. Reality doesn't need a justification to exist. Not reality, 
existence like we know it needs a justification. Who says this table needs to be? It doesn't need to be. Someone has to put it here. A tree. There's nothing in existence that has to be. The only thing that has to be what we call mechuyev, hametzias, and that's one of the words is God. Now, the question you're asking, because you're looking at God as like us. We're not mechuyev hametzias, so why does God exist? God doesn't need a why. He creates the why. Mechuyev hametzias means his existence. As I said, mitzusim atzmuse is another term. Existence comes from within himself, not because of a reason. Where does God come from? Who says he has to come from somewhere? Only creations come from somewhere. Because they have a source. He comes from within himself, which is the reality. It's a different type of reality. How could something always exist? Again, in material existence, even spiritual existence, everything is temporary. Everything is mortal. Everything at the end of the day erodes, perishes, and so on. God doesn't have any of that. It says, Eternal. Eternal, not only forever, it's because his, his whole identity, if you can call it that, is of a different nature altogether. Even that word is not good nature. How do we come to understand that? Two ways. God tells us about himself. And number two, you extrapolate through a process of elimination. You come to realize, as Avram came to realize, God can't be another one of us. Because then the same question applies, who put God there? So you have to come to the conclusion that God is of a completely different reality. He's not put He's not even defined by anything that we call existence. The ultimate, the ultimate expression would be, definition would be, non-definition, mitzias built in mitzias nimta, a non-existential existence. It's basically saying you can't say God exists like we exist. You can't say he doesn't exist. So we say he doesn't, doesn't exist. It means he doesn't exist as what we call existence, defined the way we define it. And that's why he's, Shlila Sachiv and Shlila Sashlila, meaning you can't say he's this, you can't say he's not this, because that's also our definition, and it's beyond both and all encompassing. As I've discussed in different episodes, and I'll give you the references six, episodes six, nine, and ten, 83, 104, 105, 107, 151, 181, 202, and 203. Uh, and that's not even all of them, there's even more on the topic. Let's now do two follow ups. Okay. Then the chassidus and the essays. Follow up. So we talked about empowering women versus role confusion in episodes 239 and 240. And now there's a little more follow up. I did one last week. I'm doing another uh, two. I appreciate you taking the time. Last week I read one that, that felt that I was giving too, being too liberal. Actually that woman wrote back to me and apologized, which I'll read afterwards, the second letter. So she was saying, I think I'm being too uh, compromising, too, uh, uh, what's the word, um, um, too liberal. So here this woman takes, takes issue the other way around. I appreciate you taking the time to answer my letter, but with all due respect, you're glossing over the issue. When the Rebbe came out and said that women need to learn Gemara, it is an understatement that he got flack, and not just outside Lubavitch. But the woman in Lubavitch balked and the Rebbe had to lower his standards in this regard. I don't even want to continue reading. I don't disagree entirely. The Rebbe had to lower his standards. I've never heard the Rebbe ever lower his standards because someone didn't like something. If he said it, it came from Tera and he stood by it. It could be he needed to explain to people and to give them a way to slowly acclimate themselves to it. But I would not accept that line. That's why I don't want to even give it any credence. Just reading because you wrote it. This is my mach. Ma- ma- 
This is my Machtenister's account because she lived through it. Okay. Well, you can tell that she's wrong about the Rebbe in any way lowering his standards. Giving women certification to Paskin accomplishes many things. Okay, well, here again, you're not going to find the Rebbe saying learning Gemara and the Rebbe saying there are women's schools, which of course other Haredim also do, is a far cry from Paskin Halacha. So I think you have to be careful. The Rebbe never said that he's, he's for women Paskin Halachas for many different reasons. So I just want to make that point clear. So fine, I'll read what you're saying, but I just want to make it clear that it doesn't do with the Rebbe. First of all, it's not so much about appeasing the women as much as it means to include women as part of the halachic dialogue. Why should a woman who loves halacha and gemara have to use her God-given talents to go to law school and use her analytic and logic in a court of law outside the Jewish community and be in an unsneous environment? So my response to this, she doesn't have to. Women, intelligent women, are consulted by different people and if they can use their intelligence in an area, they can help a rabbi, whether it's their husband or someone else, that because of their, their insight, by all means. So that's, these positions give Yiddish role models for girls as opposed to the second best option of the frum woman who, who is able to maintain her Torah principles in a secular non-Jewish environment. A woman, a woman feels more comfortable using her Taras and Mishpacha questions to a woman over a man, no matter how sensitive the Rav is. That is why the position of a Yetzet Halacha she's like a halachic consultant, was created because too few shilas were being asked and the women were either too lenient or too strict, which created all sorts of problems, including shalom bias. So before I read on, my response to that is, if it's within the context of potato, halachic, siddhis, and so on, and rabbis endorse it, I see no reason why a woman cannot be a mashpia, especially to other women. No, no, and she should be a leader in that direction. You know, Paskin, a pure Shiloh, black and white halacha, could always consult with the rabbi, but there's so many areas that do need the sensitivity you're describing. And, when, and women should take a prominent role in that area. The reason why the ideas of women having these kinds of positions seem so foreign is because we did not listen to the rabbi's directive to begin learning Gemara when he publicly announced his request in 1990. It wasn't a request. It was saying how times are different, and it wasn't a directive that everyone has to go learn Gemara. Because some people are fitting, some are not fitting. Even men, some are better at learning Gemara, some are not. Again, I'm commenting throughout because I don't want to give the wrong impression here. If Gemara would have been taught in our mazes, we would not be grappling with this issue about whether women can be rabbis because there would have been a seamless transition and the leaders in the Paschum of the community would have put their heads together then to facilitate the next step, which would be a formal leadership position. Again, I disagree. Leadership position is very clear how that's done. The Rebbe gave clear directives. It does not have to come as an outgrowth of learning Gemara and, and, and into Rabbanim and Poskim. We ought to embrace these options. It improves Yerushalayim and Avas Hashem and increased Torah knowledge, transforms women. And if women are transformed, their homes and families follow suit. I agree. But again, we don't have to in any way do, create unprecedented new approaches. We have a good Torah. Women have always been leaders. I grew up with women leaders around me. I see many women who are leaders. You have to know how to do it and not come up with new approaches. So though I agree in spirit, and I'm reading it because I know other people may feel like this, but I'm also commenting where I agree and where I disagree. We ought to embrace these options and improve your... Okay, yeah, I write that. Surely you are aware that there's a precedent for all these formal positions coupled with the statement that the Rebbe said in 99 that women's minds have strengthened. We could start with post-high school serious learning institutions in which women are, ther- women are thoroughly versed in all four parts of Shulchan Aruch and will know how to learn Gemara and know major parts of Mesechtis which have halachic relevance. 
If we had women like Rebetz and Rachel who could learn Gemara and Paschal the Shaila before the Alter Rebbe was born, surely today we could have this on a much wider scale called Tuv. So I'm not going to repeat myself. Some points are well taken. I think you have to know your boundaries, what yeah, what not. All this should be reviewed by proper rabbis, not those that are looking to appease or placate or just because there's new times. That's not the way we work. There's, women are powerful forces and should be powerful forces. I don't think I have to reiterate that again. Okay. Here was a letter that came to me from the woman that wrote last week that I read. So if you want to know the full picture, you have to listen to last week's program. Dear Rabbi Jacobson, thank you so much for reading my note on episode 240 regarding empowering women versus role confusion. I did go back and listen to the segment on 239 as you suggested. Thank you again for your amazing weekly Fabrengen, and I apologize if in my first letter I was harsh. Listening a second time has changed my perspective on what you were saying. I guess that follows the principle that Noshim Daitem Kalas. No, not necessarily. Noshim Daitem Kalas means women have light minds or light das. I don't see it at all that way, and I, uh, I, don't, I don't think you have to insult yourself or insult anyone else. Sometimes we hear something and maybe the tone and so on, so it's important to review, and I'm glad you did. After my second listen, I realized that you indeed were not pushing in any way to empower women in the way the questioner meant, and I think hence my confusion. You were, being, you were bringing the term empowering women to a traditional place. Correct. According to the questioner and our modern society, empowering women means that women should assume male roles in society. The questioner was giving the attempt, example of Rabbi Riskin, who runs an academy in which women can take on the role of rabbi. Your excellent response, namely that women should lead women-focused groups such as Neshei Chabad, clearly demonstrates that the Rebbe's view is that women should take leadership roles for women's groups something entirely different than the questioner was suggesting. You, re- you reiterated the principle of kol kfudda bas prima, that the, great, the honor of a, a princess is internal. Even the idea that shluchas are partners in directing Chabad houses can, in my, and in my understanding of it, should be viewed the same way. Shluchas run programs for women and children. Never was the Rebbe's intention that one week the shliach give the drasha, the speech in shul, the sermon between Shachar Samusaf and the next week, the Shluch. I think the topic of empowering women in the Rebbe's view has to be approached in a twofold manner. As a general principle, from what I've learned, the Rebbe's clearly supported women having traditional female roles, raising children and leading family only groups, female only groups. And yes, and yes, women should be educated to be fully prepared for those roles. However, when it comes to individual women, each one should ask her mashpia what role she, could, she should be playing, should she, she should play in helping her husband earn an income and contributing outside the home. The fact that in general the Rebbe's view was, an out, was as outlined above doesn't mean that an individual woman won't be given other advice from her mashpia. It also seems to differ according to culture and location. In Israel, for example, where dual income is in a necessity for most, girls are educated to be able to have careers outside the home, whether in education or otherwise. This approach seems similar to the Rebbe's approach on higher education. In general, he didn't support his chassidim going on to study in colleges and universities, but individual chassidim who did, got the, did get the Rebbe's bracha, but individual chassidim did get the Rebbe's bracha and support. Since you asked about me, I grew up in the UK to non-observant parents. When I went to university, I studied for my law degree as an undergraduate student and then studied in Hebrew University for one year for a master's degree. During my university years, 
in Hebrew and during my university years and and year in Hebrew U, I became from and followed that I got married and had children. After a few years of practicing law at a firm, I was blessed to be able to take a number of my clients and start my own private practice from home. So my path was slightly different from the traditional path of a Chabad girl, especially a girl growing up in Crown Heights would typically be on. I certainly don't want to deny any girl the opportunity to follow her dreams of contributing to society in a way most suited to her skill set and life mission. I just see many girls confused and duped into thinking that they want something that decades later they'll realize they didn't really want. So to sum up, and thank you for that, I read the whole letter, is yes, we're not looking to emulate women emulating men, men not emulating women. They both have divine roles that are indispensable, and we have to know that. Yes, there are changes in society. That's why girls go today and women go to schools. Once upon that was not the case. They have the opportunities to be leaders in a modest and sneezedic way, especially of women in their community, and many other factors. It's very important to know how to adapt and to embrace the new challenges and new situations, but never compromise the integrity and the spirit of the original. Okay. There's another question from a follow-up, but I'll do that next week. But revealing one's past in Shaduchim, um, we'll go to the Chassidus question and then the essays. Chassidus question. Is God's desire, Nisave, Nisave is a Hebrew word from the Medrash cited in Tanya chapter 36, that the Rebbe Rashab would add the word Yisbaruch. Nisave, that God desired to have a home in the lowest of worlds. The Altareb explains this in chapter 36. So this questioner is asking, is God's desire, Nesave, to have a home in the lowest of worlds rooted in Atzmus or in Gilwim? Okay, Atzmus in the core essence, I described earlier, that's beyond all structures and all definitions. So this, that's the questioner asks. The first moment of Tafre Samarvov, when it says Nesave, is Nesave hinting to Atzmus? Or is it a gilu of Hashem, not Atzmus? The taiv of Hashem, God's desire, in reference to the creation of the world, is, is hinting where is revelation, gili, or is it about himself, the etzem? And the maimel aitiyah mishakeh letovshin yud beiz, the one the Rebbe said, is that talking about giluim and atzmus? Okay. So first let me refer you to episodes 171 and 231 where I spoke about this more at length, what this nesav is and so on. Generally speaking, in the Maimonim it says, nesav batzmusei yizboruch. It's the only thing that associates Musa Yisbarach. And that's why it's called the Taivan. Now, obviously, we can't use the word Taivan and God, definitely not an Atmos. But it's what's called the Shachich In order for us to be able to say anything, we need to have a word. So in Shabbos Pasha Vayeshev, Tovshin Lamed Zayin, there's a beautiful Sikh, a very deep Sikh, I should discuss it one of these weeks, that Tainug is the highest level. Nesava Kajbaruchu, you never is higher than Ratzin, than desire, will. Nesava is used as the Alta Rebbe said, Kasha. So it's an example used for us to understand something that's not driven by logic. When someone has a desire for something, someone has pleasure for something, desire here, not as in Ratzin, as in Tainug, as Taiva, you don't ask why. It's, how, it's who you are, and you just have a desire. The point here, we're not talking about a Taiva that doesn't have, is irrational. 
We're talking about that transcends logic. And the same thing here, Nesava Kodesh Baruch Hu, when you say, why did God create the world? So we have the different reasons as he enumerates in Samach Vav and Tavshin Beis, the Rebbe Sichus Shmois Beis and Chelik Vav, Kutesichus. So there's the reason to reveal his Galash Lemus Kechesov, his full potential, to reveal the potential, the complete, the, 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 the actualizes potential. There's Begin Dishtamudenbe, in order that we should know him. There's Yakiru Gdolose, to recognize his greatness, which is similar. So there Chassidus explains and the Rebbe explains that that's in Eris and in Kalim and in Eris. But then the ultimate reason, Taima Miti, because all those reasons are not enough to explain, it's enough to explain in Shedish Talsus these reasons. But what's the ultimate reason? Why would God do it? The answer is there is no why. Because logic and why is created by God. The question is why did he create a existence? You don't ask why, you say Nesavah. So it's the closest thing that we can define Atmos, that Atmos desires this. And there's no reason why, because you can't ask a question why before there's logic. And you can't ask why in Atmos. In Giluim, you could ask why, because a Gili does not have to be. So you could ask, why is it there? The answer is God wants it there, because it's going to serve a function. But Atmos does not serve a function. He's not a functionary. He doesn't have defined by function. So then the question is, like Chassidus says, we, we, we don't know because it's, it's beyond logic. It transcends. It's a etzem wanting something. You can't even say the word want, so we say nesava for lack of a better expression. And then we negate and say, do all the negating and saying it's not desire, it's not taiva, it's just that we don't have another word. So what else are we going to say? We have to say the Abrish to created a world. And he has a kavon in it. What is it? So nesava is the closest thing to describe something that's higher than understanding and logic and rotsun and any type of tziur. So it's absolutely an atzimus, not in Giluim. If it was in Giluim, you, would be, you wouldn't need to rely on the Sava. You can rely on a reason. Or one of the reasons or other reasons, and so on. So Chassidus says, we don't know why. We know what. We know what he wants, but we don't know why he wants. And the reason is because the why doesn't even exist yet. That's the general explanation of this. Okay. Let's go now to the essays, three essays. As we wind down this year, that's the 2018 essay contest. So the first essay, You Are a Gift. Gittel Khan 11, age 62, New Haven, Connecticut. Griffin Hospital Psychiatrist. Okay. Everything I need to know about Chassidus, I learned from a person who couldn't speak. Very moving essay. Years ago when I was in college, I volunteered one summer in a VA hospital's physical therapy department. There was a young man there who had been in a coma for over a year as a result of a a motorcycle accident. One day he miraculously woke up. I don't want to take away from from the surprise, the drama of this, so you'll read it on your own. But she says, I learned how what we are is God's gift to us. What we become is our gift to God, quoting Eleanor Powell. It goes on to explain chassidus of it. God is good, the concept of bittel. We are put on this earth to make a dwelling place for God. Tikkun olam, do not judge your fellow. We cannot judge others, we must judge ourselves. Very short but powerful essay. This essay has just been posted. The essays that I read and review are posted each week at meaningfullife.com slash mylife. You can also receive them if you subscribe, free subscription to our weekly newsletter and we announce we put links there for each of the new essays well done essay really well done
I want to say one comment because someone mentioned it to me and I also noticed it. The essays are not being read in the order that they were marked. For whatever reason, technical reasons, I'm reading them in the order that I was given. But the truth is they should have been read in the order of the highest marks downward. So just be aware of that. So many essays that I may be reading later receive much, much higher marks than essays I read earlier. And I just wanted to clarify that. We will try to correct that in the future. The next essay is in Hebrew. Next two essays, actually. Um, Live Every Moment Anew. By Yesef Yitzhak Shleimah Pevzner, age 20, Betari Lit, Yerushalayim, a student in Migla Emek. So this is Tainu Gizchatshus Lichis Korega Mechadosh. So this, of course, is the central theme about, about what is real and what is not real. And the central theme of Chassidus, of Ischatshus, of constant renewal. That when you connect, so to speak, to the power station, to the central nervous system, you're able to go back and renew and experience renewal all the time. So he does this in an elaborate way, explaining seichel uh, and cognitive emotions and how keiches, faculties, go back to their source for regeneration, for recharging their battery, so to speak. Explains it very nicely. Starting from Einig being the source, I mentioned Taiva, Einig is being the highest Kayach Atik in language of Chassidus and Kabbalah, and how that translates into Amuna and ultimately giving us the ability to constantly grow, constantly be constantly thirsty and grow and aspire to greater and higher heights. Feeling renewal all the time. Imagine feeling renewal all the time. Okay, that's essay number two today and the next essay is the third essay is Regaining Control Over Your Life by Menachem Mendel Chamu Chamoy Chamu Ches Menvov age 25 Tzfat Israel he's a Merech um, he's a uh, he teaches uh, soldiers in um, yeah in the army in the IDF his is Regaining Control Over Your Life so there he talks a lot about how we lose control in the modern technological world because of all the different distractions and technologies and how one can contend with that and find a way to regain control. And he does that by explaining what is a human being and how we have to be able to be deliberate in our choices, deliberate in our choices of things that you know you can refrain from doing things you're not capable of doing, and then knowing that you really have the power to control and, 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 and have control in your own personal life. Of course, he uses a lot based on Moyach Shal Ta'alev, self-control from Tanya, Perigid Beis, and from other sources of Chassidus. So another good essay in Hebrew. And as I said at the outset of this, um, this episode, that we are about to launch formally the new, life, new My Life Chassidus Applied Essay Contest, but I've given you an inside scoop so you can begin working on it, knowing that this is happening, and it will be, the deadline, as I said, a Zion audition at the Tovshinayin Tess, February 12th, I believe I said. Yes, February 12th, correct. Now, let me conclude. I wish you have a very healthy week, a very blessed week, as we go into Pasha Shmes this month, the, the Sefer HaGeula, and we should already be zeichet to the Gula Amitzah Rashlem that comes through Yifutzu Menesech HaChutzah and Mashiach Tola Baal Shem Tov, through spreading your wellsprings outward. 
It's an honor always to be here with you. Please share your questions, your comments, your feedback. And of course, we always look forward to your support on all levels, including financial support, especially as we come to the end of the secular year. Thank you. We're here 8 to 9 p.m. every Sunday, as we'll be here next week. On My Life Chassidah Supplied, this has been My Life Chassidah Supplied, episode 241. Be well.